about it we all are god gives us a fingerprint if you will I'm you're just <laughs> i know that's not true <laughs> although i'll tell you i don't know if you remember when uh, we were much younger don and dan convinced me that don was adopted they both were in on it and i was like i would look at her and i would look at you and sheila and i would be like how? I mean, you look just like parents. How can it? They both were in on it, and for a long time, I was just like, Don does look like me, but Dan looks like she was yeah. grandpa. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've seen pictures. <laughs> There's no doubt you guys are related. Yeah. <coughs> it wasn't a wood pile or anything. A letter like from Claremont. I don't know if you read it or not. got it yesterday. Oh well, it came yesterday. Anybody, wait, you know, give him the bulletins. It feels pretty good in here now. What do we got? It's 60. How come it feels nice at 60? Okay, so it is doing its job, just slowly. We're going to have to get somebody down here because the system works, but I have to go down there and turn the heater on. I think Dale normally tries to come down, but he probably, I think he's got lots of food or something he's going to try to yeah. haul in. And, uh, well, and last Sunday it worked. Yeah. Last Sunday nobody touched it and it turned on like it's supposed to. Yeah. This morning I checked on it. Rachel, are we all set as far as you know? Yes? Okay. All right. 
Irish descent. Deckard, yeah. What name? Declan. 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 D-E-C-L-A-N. It's a girl, I think. It's a boy. It's a boy. Declan. <laughs> Declan Robertson. I actually have heard it, but not very often. I think that's a new one to me. It's a new one to me. So if you're looking for names with great character, yeah. that's, yes. that's a new one to me, too. <laughs> I was like, that is, as I put that in the comments, yeah. that's full of character. Yeah. So. Yeah. Everybody's doing well, except for Grandma. She's wore out. Oh, I bet. <laughs> She's been babysitting. The kids have been out of the house, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> <sighs> Is this fresh water?
Good morning. Good to see you all here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Let's look at our announcements. Again, uh, offering envelopes in the box. Andrea's number. The magazines are here for this month. And if you're interested in helping out by picking up the mail, um, see Terry uh, about that. That's at the post office in Metamora. I have a card. This was written by Clara May. Um, I, pre I presume that this was just before she got very seriously ill. Now let me read it to you. To my dear church family, thank you for the nice basket of holiday plants. I thank each one of you for all the many cards, phone calls, and most of all, for your ongoing prayers to our God on my behalf. <clears throat> Knowing you uh, were praying was such an encouragement to my heart. God has been so good to me. Thanks also to everyone who stayed after prayer meeting the last two weeks to clean the church for me and to pastor for doing the bulletin the past three weeks. I thank God for our church family here at Thornville Baptist. He has surely blessed us in him, Claire May. So you can get a little context about what kind of when, when that was written when when you guys were helping to clean the church. So. Okay, what else have I forgotten? If there's nothing else, our scripture for meditation is found in Ezekiel chapter 37. That's 1345 in the Pew Bible.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Phil, would you mind? Amen. Take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 467, 467 in the red.
We have a favorite hymn this morning. Oh, good morning, Diane. Yes, ma'am. Uh, 522 in the brown. 522 in the brown. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Amen. Five two two in the brown.
our scripture, scripture reading comes from the book of, of Ezekiel, verses 1 through 14, 1303 in the Pew Bible. Sixteen, one through fourteen. The Lord came to me, Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Clothes. No one. No one looked on you with pity. Do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, or on the you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there, you live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. That you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment for you. Into a covenant with you, flares of the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with put ornaments in your on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. A necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears. Of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because of the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
Amen. Ask the Lord will bless his reading of his word. Amen. We take your red hymnal again and turn to number 466, 466 in the red. Our scripture text this morning is Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. As we come to the scriptures today, let's ask the Lord's intervention. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures, the word of God. You say in the scriptures itself that it's living, the word of God is living. That it will accomplish whatever you have designed it to do. Your word does not return to you empty, that is, without fulfilling the purpose for which you gave it. We know that the word has the power to help us grow in our faith as Christians. It also has the power to rebuke us for our sin 
and to point us again to Christ and his sacrifice. The word of God brings conviction to the lost that have never given one ounce of understanding to God or his word. The word brings healing to our sick and sorry souls at times. This wonderful word from you does all of these things and more. And we give you thanks for that. Because we are a needy people. We're a needy country. We're a needy county here, here in Little Michigan. And we ask, Lord, that you will bless Bless our people as they assemble today to hear God's word. And help us not to be stingy with the word, but to go forth and to share the gospel with people that are ignorant of the truths of God's word. People are so consumed with their selfish desires, with making money, being popular, all the things that the world holds out as baubles, We go after them sometimes ourselves. Forgive us for that, but Lord, direct our thoughts to the word that we might be made in the image of the Lord, seeking your will, loving the gospel, loving the word of God. Help us, Lord, to be a living witness to our friends and relatives for the sake of Jesus and for their good. Amen. One of the most common myths about love, which is propagated throughout our country, is that love is something people cannot do anything about. It is said you either love someone or you don't. People speak of falling in love. And they also talk about falling out of love when contemplating divorce. They'll say things like, I don't love you anymore. The reason for this is because love is almost universally equated with love feelings. We've all heard people say, I just don't have any feelings for so-and-so. The implication being that feelings come and go. No one can control the circumstances which make them arise or disappear. So the bottom line is that we are simply helpless victims of the whims of our heart. Destined, as it were, to fall in love and maybe fall out of love with the same person. And if the latter occurs, well then, tough as it may be, there's not so much of one thing that we can do about it except to call it quits, I guess. I mean, think about it. We would not think of staying in a relationship, a marriage, where there's no love feelings. That's the thought of the age. And added to all of this is the assumption that love is a purely subjective emotion with little or no room for objectivity. Even how we are attracted to one another is used as verification for that. Someone is attracted to another because of their looks or their smile or their figure or in the case of men because he's tall, dark, and handsome which rules most of us out. 
a person may be loved for his or her intelligence or their sense of humor or because they have a caring and kind nature. But when all the analysis is done, we still think of all of this as purely subjective. We have an expression, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And as we apply this to this subjective nature of love, we would say, what is appealing to one person may be a total turnoff to another person. We believe that this proves, this proves that love is subjective and has little to do with reason or logic or decisions of the will. Well, today I want to look at these myths, for surely they are myths from God's viewpoint and God's own example to us of what real love consists. I want to talk about elective love. And there are two stories that illustrate the principle. They're both in Ezekiel. Our text before us, Ezekiel 16, takes us back into the mind of God at the earliest history of Jerusalem, in particular, more generally, Israel as a nation, when they were nothing but pagans. Look at verse 3. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now that's a reference not to any particular person, but a person to the people groups who populated the lands from which Abraham and Sarah journeyed before showing up in the Jordan Valley. How precarious indeed was the state of these two foreigners, Abraham and Sarah, and their nephew Lot, throw in another, as they arrived in Canaan, precarious and insignificant as far as people go. God himself notes this in our text by showing how unloved and unwanted Israel was. Look at verse 4. On the day you were born, the day you became, came to be a nation, in other words, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt, salt was used for healing purposes, nor wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion on you to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Wow. Now, the analogy here is that of an unwanted, aborted baby, the fledgling nation, that had been discarded and left in a field to die. I want you to note the description. The normal biological needs required to assure the life of a newborn were deliberately ignored. No cutting or sealing of the umbilical cord. Verse 6, emphasis emphasizes the blood loss. No cleansing with water. No antiseptic salt to ward off infection. No cloth wrappings to protect from the elements. These are all sins of neglect. Every one of them designed to facilitate death. But also there were sins of commission. Verse 5, this baby, no one pitied. No one had compassion upon. 
Instead, it was thrown naked into an open field and left to die by exposure because it was despised. So clearly, Israel had a very rocky start. It was not wanted, it was not appreciated by the surrounding nations. Certainly, the Canaanites did not relish the idea of forfeiting their land to this upstart of a people. Obviously, this newborn had many strikes against it. And humanly speaking, it was destined to be swallowed up by its more powerful enemies. One could hardly have picked a more vivid picture of vulnerability than an aborted, unwanted, unloved, infant, thrown, exposed, unprotected into an open field. But this was Israel. This was Israel. How then did she survive? A little dinky nation on a little strip of land (laughs) surrounded by Canaanites that hated God were all into their idolatry. How did she survive? Well, God is speaking. What does he say? He says this. Then I pass by. And as you lay there in your blood, I said, live. Get it? I said, live. God Almighty, who has the power to save or destroy, walked by and said, Live! In the midst of Israel's dying day, God said, Live! When no one had compassion on Israel and looked upon her without any pity, God said, Live! And when she was despised and the sentence of death due to exposure was upon her, God said, live he did more verse 9 I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you verse 7 I made you grow you grew and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels verse 10 I clothed you with embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you verse 11 I adorned you with jewelry, bracelets, necklace, nose ring, earrings, and a beautiful crown on your head. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. Verse 14. The splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. What is all this? Well, It is God in his sovereignty choosing to love a discarded child of the world, a nation destined to perish off the face of the earth because of its vulnerability and because of no one to come to its aid. A people scarcely born was in the throes of death and God chose to grant life saying, live. And so he breathed life into what was dead and dying. 
You say, well, then God in his omniscience must have seen some redeemable qualities in this fledgling people to choose to love them. Is that what you think? Let God answer for himself, Deuteronomy 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affections on you. He didn't love you. And choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath sworn to your forefathers that he brought up out, reference to Egypt, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and following. In reading that, there's no thought here of any so-called redeemable quality in Israel, no idea that God foresaw faithfulness in Israel and so chose them as his people based on that foreseen fidelity. In the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 8, verse 6, in explaining that God will drive the wicked nations of Canaan out before Israel, he says, Understand, then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. What's that mean? Well, that's an Old Testament expression, meaning you're stubborn and you're willfully defiant. That's who you are. You're defiant of the Lord's commands. You're not an obedient people. So don't get a swelled head here and think that the Lord is saving you because you're so good. You're not good. The love of God, brethren, for any people is an elective love solely of his choosing and a choosing which resides solely within himself. God is not coerced into loving us by a power greater than himself nor wooed into loving us because of logical or rational arguments, nor drawn into loving us because he sees in his omniscience that one is less wicked than another. God is not impressed with your credentials because you have nothing to commend yourself to God. We are bankrupt morally and spiritually. I am bankrupt. Morally and spiritually. We never outgrow this bankruptcy. We never outgrow the fact that we are in such a dire strait in and of ourselves. The bankruptcy will always appear on the credit report. Always. We're ever dependent upon the grace of God to keep us in his love, to credit our account with deposits of the righteousness of his dear son. 
Paul explains God's sovereign love using the human progenitor of Israel as a reference point in Romans 9. It reads, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, verse 10 and following. We read again, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I'm sure you've all heard the explanation of God's electing grace. It goes something like this. God looked down the corridors of time and he saw who would believe in his son Jesus and who would not. And on the basis of what he saw, that it's by his omniscience, he chose those who would believe in him to become a part of his family. I want you to think about that. In that scenario... Who did the choosing? You say it was God. Well, was it? God chose us because he saw that we chose him? That doesn't sound right. Well, this text in Romans 9 categorically refutes that kind of twisting of the truth. Paul is careful to place the choosing of Jacob as overseer of his older brother Esau, which was unheard of in Oriental societies. That just didn't happen. But this happened and before their birth, before any opportunity to prove themselves worthy of, of righteousness. And the reason given for such an outrageous reversal of family protocol is this. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the reason. And people read this, And they say, well, that's not fair. Esau never had a chance. Behind that suggestion, of course, is the assumption that God loved Jacob because of some intrinsic value that he had over Esau. But that's not true. Have we forgotten what a scoundrel Jacob was? Oh, my. What a liar. What a deceiver. What a wheeler dealer. His name Jacob means literally a heel grabber. Hence someone who trips up another person. Well, he hoodwinked Esau out of his birthright, his brother. He tricked Isaac into blessing him with Esau's blessing. Satan is called the deceiver in Revelation 12.9. Jacob was the devil's child before God changed his heart. And when he got a new nature from God, he obtained a new name. His new name became Israel, not Jacob, not the deceiver, but Israel, the prince of God. Wow. That's what God does. He takes sinners and deceivers and cheats and liars and 
immoral people, and you name it, and he makes them prince and princess of God. But at the point of God's choosing, Jacob was just as evil as Esau, and Esau was just as innocent as Jacob. They both deserved the rejection of God. They both stood condemned as sinners. They both had inherited the wages of sin, which is death and hell. But God chose to love Jacob, and in that to display his mercy where he wills. And that is precisely his perspective as God. And Paul answers the objection that we have and have been considering Romans 9, verse 14. What then shall we say, asked Paul? Is God unjust? Wow, he's throwing it right out there. Hmm, that's what we think. So you might as well say it, right? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion, that is, I will love. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16 states the conclusion in Romans 9. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Wow. Simply put, God chooses to love whom he wants to love, And the mercy he bestows upon them is the proof of his love. The Esau's of the world are not treated unjustly by God. They get justice. They get exactly what their sinful lifestyle deserves. The Jacob's of the world get mercy. They receive what their sinful life does not deserve. Grace reaches down to them from the love of God and places them into his family for no other reason than that God has willed it so. Verse 25 from Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. God's will makes it happen. I will do these things. Israel is a nation of people. Ezekiel 16, the aborted child that no one wanted. Or Jacob as the individual who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel makes no difference. Both were the product of God's elective love. Had he not chosen to say to that aborted baby dying in the field, Live! The nation would have died at birth. And had he not chosen to say, Jacob, I love you, there would have been no Israelites. Jacob's new name, by the way, was changed to Israel. Now why is this so? Why does God choose whom he will love based upon his own sovereignty without taking into consideration 
the merit or the actions of the recipient. Well, to answer this, we have to go to the second text in Ezekiel, which we read for our meditation this morning. That's Ezekiel 37. And in this text, Ezekiel was transported by the Spirit to the middle of a valley whose floor was strewn with thousands and thousands of bones. And verse 2 says, very dry bones to indicate that they had been there a long time, bleaching in the desert sun. The vultures had long since picked away every scrap of flesh upon those bones. The ants had drained every vital drop of blood from the marrow, and the sun had baked them hard and white like so much sticks of marble from a stonecutter's tool. Samson would have found any one of these bones a formidable weapon to use against his enemies because they were rock hard and strong. And as Ezekiel gazed over this vast valley of the dead remains of one-time warriors who now laid there where they had fallen, unburied, undignified in their death, God posed this question to him. What a question. Can these bones live? Ezekiel, can these bones live? Boy, that's, that's quite a question. Many men would be quick to answer, don't be ridiculous. The scientific types would probably chuckle under their breath and refuse to give an answer, thinking the whole matter's too absurd to even warrant a reply. Can these bones live? Come on. But Ezekiel answered wisely, saying, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Hmm. You know, God's people learn in the first primers of their Christian walk to tread lightly when it comes to suggesting that God cannot do things. Or worse, that he does not know what he's talking about. As the account unfolds, Ezekiel's told to prophesy to the bones. Verse 4 and following. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verses 4 through 6. And this is precisely what happened. We read there was a sound, excuse me, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Tendons and flesh appeared on them. Skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Verse 7 and 8. So here we have the appearance of being whole, the appearance of being alive, but they're still dead. They're still lifeless. Quite dead, quite lifeless. No breath in them. Verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. This is what the sovereign Lord says. 
Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Verse 10 and following explains that this object lesson was a picture of Israel whose bones were dried up, its hope gone, its life cut off. And the message that God was conveying through Ezekiel, verse 12, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. That's the object lesson. Here's the answer to our question. Why does God choose whom he will love solely on the basis of his own sovereign will? Say it another way. Why is it God and not man who initiates repentance and faith to sin- in sinners? It's because man... All men, without exception, are dead and dry, without hope, cut off from God. There's no life in us to respond, no thought of God, no love of God, no belief in Him, and no sorrow for our sinful rebellion towards Him. We do not give God a second thought, let alone first place in our lives. Now, we may have the appearance of life and wholeness as Ezekiel's listeners whose bones and had come together with tendons and muscles and skin but still laid there lifeless on the desert, sand till God's Spirit breathed into them the breath of life. For example, Paul speaks of the sensual-seeking woman as being dead while she lives. Wow. 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. Dead to God is the idea, though very much alive in the flesh. May I say this is all of us all the time, with no exception. Religiously educated or unchurched, biblically knowledgeable or scripturally illiterate, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2, 1, verse 12. At that time, separated from Christ, without hope, without God in the world. Well, that's pretty dire. Dead? You sure about that, Paul? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Call a dead person to believe in Christ. You cannot do it. Present the gift of eternal life to him and enjoin him to reach out and take it. Just There it is. It's right there next to you. Reach out, take it. He's a dead person. He can't do it. Plead, invite, woo, reason with the man of the world to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He cannot do it. Why not? Because he's dead spiritually. And Paul writes... The things of God, he does not accept, and he cannot understand them. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. 
Is he going to accept, do something that he doesn't accept and that he doesn't understand? No. Can you not see? Can you not see how doomed we are if God does not choose to love us? Ah, but if he loves us, he does for us what he did for Israel. He sends his spirit to breathe life into our spiritually dead souls. And that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Wow, we were dead, but God made us alive. And he goes with the final phrase, it is by grace that you have been saved. Ephesians 2 verse 4. That's why it is grace. And this God did by sending his Holy Spirit to breathe life. It's like Ezekiel standing there in the valley of the dead bones and God sends a breath of life. Paul writes it this way, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit wow the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children Romans 8 verse 11 and following now here's the question is faith in Jesus and repentance of sins, is that important to salvation? And the answer is absolutely. But for faith and repentance to be operative, there has to be spiritual life. The, the, these are works or respo responses of a spiritual life. Faith, repentance. And it's the Spirit of God who grants life to those whom God loves. And the loved respond in faith and repentance. Can't be any other way because dead we are until God smiles upon us and declares in his sovereignty, live, live. What's the end goal of the matter? Well, God said of the resurrected dry bone warriors, then you will know that I am the Lord have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 37, verse 14. And he says to all of us in the new covenant, who though dead in sin and were made alive in Christ, it is by grace you have been saved through faith that not from yourselves, It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I've heard so many people say, well, I had to believe, well, I had to believe, well, I had to believe. What does that verse say? It is by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and this not from yourselves. The faith is not from yourselves. Brethren, the glory of the gospel is not that you love Jesus, but that he loved you. That's the glory of the gospel. It is not that you chose him, but that he chose you. It is not that you received him as Savior, but that he made you his son and daughter and adopted you into his family. The glory of the gospel is God and what he did, not you and what you did. This is not subjective love. It is objective love. This is not feelings love that's here today and gone tomorrow. This is purposeful love based upon a one-sided covenant in which God chose to love us, the scripture says, before the creation of the world. And in love predestinated us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and following. And before we had done anything good or evil, this is an intentional, on-purpose love, not an accidental, out-of-control, oh, fall-in-love type of thing. We are to strive for this type of love ourselves that is objective and intentional. May I say love on purpose which determines us to love one another in spite of the sins that we see in one another and the failures people perpetrate against us. This is why God in his word can and does command us to love others, whether husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church or the command to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, the story of the Good Samaritan, or the command to love our enemies and to pray for those who despitefully use us, right? Even as God sends his rain and sunshine on infidels to sustain their lives through the produce of their fields. And love can be commanded because it's more than feelings. It's more than feelings. It's more than subjective. Love is an objective choice. May we this day choose choose love over hatred, compassion over callousness, affection over anger, tenderness over bitterness. We who know God must love like God. Or we're not his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. These are high, high, high qualifications and definitions of love. They're spiritual definitions. They're certainly something better than the world. The world's love is so fickle. 
I'll love you if you love me, but if you don't love me, I won't love you. I'll love you if you do this and do this and do this, but I won't love you if you don't do this. We're to have a compassion and a heart of love for our fellow men because we understand what it means to be sinners. And we understand what it means to have had God's mercy shed upon us when we didn't deserve it. Can we not take some of that love, indeed that same kind of mercy, and apply it to those with whom we have daily dealings, whether it be an employer or family members or next-door neighbors or relatives, whatever, we're to shed forth the love of God. We're to be an example of what it's like to be loved and to love. I pray that you'll help us. Because if we're not loving, we're not giving right examples of God's love. And if we are bitter and hateful and not loving, are we really God's child? Are we really saved? So I'm praying this morning, forgive us, Lord, for those times when we didn't show our love. When we were selfish, just like the world. When we could have been loving in certain situations, but chose not to be. When our pride got the best of us. When our sin got the best of us. Forgive us. And help us to do a better responsibility in this area. Lord, live out your love through us, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Our closing hymn is in Trinity, the red hymnal, number 469. Shall we stand together as we sing?
Redeeming grace. Wow. It's called grace because it's God's gift. Our Lord, we just thank you and praise you for the fact that in your grace you sent forth your Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who believe and repent, granting us a place at the table, a place in your family. I pray for anyone here that's outside of your grace in the sense that they have not come to know Jesus. They're still questioning in their mind, what about all this religious talk? Grace, forgiveness, repentance, coming to Christ, believing. Lord, grant them understanding, for only you can do that. Your word is true, whether they believe it or not. They'll someday be judged by the word as they stand before the throne of God, in particular the throne of Christ, to give an account for what they have done with him. I pray, Lord, that today will be the day that they find Jesus, or more importantly, that he finds them, so that there be no fear of judgment in the days to come, but grace and mercy and peace. We thank you, Lord, for saving us on the merit of Jesus alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are dismissed.